we're diving deep on Nikola Jokic and the Serbia to NBA pipeline. Plus, we hear from Chris Mad Dog Russo and Oakland and the A's are talking again. It's Thursday, February 15th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Mike McCarthy is reporting that Chris Mad Dog Russo has negotiated a contract extension with ESPN. The two of them spoke in Las Vegas during Super Bowl week. Here is Mike and the Mad Dog. Sports radio legend Chris Mad Dog Russo. Let's take it easy, Mike. Go ahead. <laughs> and the latest TV star. Take it easy there, too. <laughs> who's reintroducing himself to a whole generation of fans on first take. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure to be here. How you doing, pal? I'm good? really good, good. Really good. You've reintroduced yourself to a whole generation of fans maybe didn't know you outside of New York or know you out of Satellite. How do you like this whole first take gig? I love the first take gig, and I think you're right. I, I've, I've had a renaissance, uh, and I think it's because of Stephen A. Uh, I think, uh, you know, him putting me on there, and it's his decision. Him putting on, him putting me on there a couple years ago, let's see what he can do. And, you know, he knew I would be good at it. I think that's added a, an element to my career. Uh, that uh, I didn't have before, as you said. That's a different kind of audience. Uh, it's a younger, a much younger audience who, you know, doesn't know who, again, Bart Starr is. And I think those rants that I do, you know, on the Wednesdays, uh, I think that has added an element to it because I can be goofy with the camera and everything else. Puts pressure on me because I got to be good with it every week and I need some content. But, um, and he lets, me, he lets me pick on him. I think people appreciate that too. They, they, I'm the only guy on there who can really go after him. <laughs> you call him Stevie. Uh, Stevie, and what are you talking about? Come on, huh? I mean, I can do that, and he allows me to, so yeah. we have to give him credit. A lot of other guys are not gonna do that. Yeah. So I think that adds to it too, but no question about it, Mike. It has really added an, an element of my life that I didn't have forever. Yeah. And it came out of nowhere at 64 years of age. So I got to appreciate it, have fun with it. I did three of them this week. Getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning wasn't easy. But um, it also helps the radio show because I do things on there yeah. that I can use for the radio. Yeah. So it helps the radio show. So it kind of helps. It blends in well. I feel like the NFL is making a huge mistake here. I mean, as a historian, the NFL built its popularity on free, over-the-air television. Why would you not dance with the girl you brought? The one thing I would say about the NFL, though, they make it sound like they're genius. I could sell the TV rights. If they get 56 million watching Buffalo and Kansas City, it doesn't take a Harvard mm. graduate to be able to say, hey, look at this, 56 million. I, they had 93 out of the top 100 shows on television. I can sell those rights too. It's not that complicated. They have the great product, people can't get enough of it, and they sell it all over the place. So the idea that they have innovative, how bright they are, that is a bunch of freaking nonsense. They are the National Football League that has the whole world is obsessed with it and they can figure out to make anybody could do this. So, and they're not loyal. And you know, do you blame them? Eh, you know, to each his own, they can do what they want. But remember, CBS for 37 years and they couldn't wait to get them the hell out of there to go to Fox. Yeah. Keep that in mind. Yeah. The Oakland A's have come up with a new idea for where to play in the three years before their Las Vegas stadium is ready, Oakland. The San Francisco Chronicle's John Shea reported that the team will meet with city officials on Thursday to discuss an extension of the team's lease. 
The A's reportedly pay $1.2 million annually on a lease that runs through this season, and they have not booked a place for where to play from 2025 to 2027. Sacramento, Salt Lake City, and Reno have all been considered, but to keep their media deal worth $70 million this season, according to ESPN's Jeff Passan, they have to remain in the Bay Area. That's why just staying in Oakland a few more years always made the most sense. Sources told Front Office Sports that Billy Bean, who has been curiously absent from public discussions about the team's move, urged John Fisher to re-engage with Oakland. The city, however, is in a good negotiating position here, and Mayor Sheng Tao has said previously that if the A's want to stick around, there will be conditions. What might those be? Tao has floated the idea that Oakland could keep the rights to the team name or be guaranteed an MLB expansion team. The team is unlikely to give up the A's name and doesn't have the power to grant Oakland an expansion team, but the city should be able to get something here, because the team stands to lose tens of millions of dollars and they don't have a real plan B. Next up, NASCAR and the apparel brand 47 are teaming up to try to tap into each other's audiences. I spoke to the executives from both in this sponsored segment. This segment is presented by 47. I'm now joined by Dominic Farrell, president at 47, and Megan Malater, the managing director of licensing and consumer products at NASCAR. Welcome, Dominic. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for Thank having us. Yeah, great to have you on. So NASCAR and 47 are now working together. Why are you a fit for each other and what's this going to look like? Well, from our perspective, you know, NASCAR really is working to be younger, more relevant and diverse. And one of the ways that you really can connect to fans is through brands that they know, trust and love. So we've been cooking up a licensing relationship with 47 for quite a while now through NASCAR team properties, really bringing our brands, whether that's NASCAR, whether that's tracks or teams and drivers and the sport into the great product line that 47 has put together. And Dominic, why NASCAR? We love the NASCAR consumer. Personally, I'm a huge NASCAR fan, but we we view the NASCAR consumer very much uh, in sync with the 47 consumer that we have already. Um, but we see them as underserved today. You know, 47 makes a very elevated, uh, very high quality product. And we want to make sure that we deliver that to the NASCAR fan, something something new and different. Does this feel like a new thing for 47 or, or is this, you know, still pretty squarely in your wheelhouse? It's it's something that all of our internal employees are really excited about. So, yes, we, you know, we do business with with all leagues in different ways. Um, but this one is unique. You know, it's, it's a it's a consumer base that we haven't fully tapped into and it's one that, you know, we've generated a lot of excitement internally. And now we're, we're really excited to drive a lot of excitement externally because uh, we think what we're going to bring to the table is, is, is new and different and really unique and something that the consumer's craving. And, and yeah, what are you going to be, be bringing to, to consumers? What, um, what are you going to be offering? Yeah, so we have, we have apparel and, and headwear. Um, we're also doing a, a lot of work with the drivers specifically. So a lot of it is, is going to be on the driver's heads as well. Um, but you know, high quality headwear, high quality apparel, some definitely new design graphic techniques that, that are not in the marketplace yet, uh, to, to be very wearable for the fan. Um, what are some other parts of your broader strategy to bring NASCAR to more folks? 
you know, as we, we look at licensed product as a great gateway to reaching fans and fan of the future, it's really a shift in mindset from what I had. I've been at NASCAR for a little over 15 years now. And I used to think of, of consumer products as like a very discretionary spend and kind of, you know, further on in the hierarchy of what fans are looking for. But I have also realized consumer products can be a gateway to new audiences. And, and really, if you can work to position your brand with the right brands that you collaborate with to authentically reach a community and its culture, it's going to drive connection and new conversation. Um, so, you know, that's fundamental to when we're assessing kind of what we put together, uh, whether it's this program with 47 or with its with toy and youth partners, it, it's really trying to kind of figure out how we can authentically promote, approach a community uh, with our brand and its attributes with other like-minded partners. And along those lines, Megan, uh, NASCAR held a street race in Chicago recently. Will we see more big city street races down the road? So I, I think from a NASCAR perspective in general, these jewel pop-up events, things like Chicago street race, things like the clash at the Coliseum, they're, they're not going away. We're going to you know, continue to kind of find different ways uh, to reach markets and, and different demographic groups within the space, meeting them where they are. They're so important because, you know, Chicago, for example, everybody in Chicago knows how to grant, go to Grant Park. They maybe have never been out to a NASCAR track before. So it's bringing uh, the NASCAR environment to an environment they know and understand and know how to, to come to. And, and it's really meeting the fans where they are. Um, you know, we, we specifically get very hyper local in our looks and feels for what we're doing. We bring things in that they care about within their community and their culture and the sport and it kind of ties them together. So uh, things like Chicago for us and The Clash are just huge for audience development and fan development and, and meeting new customers. And Dominic, that meeting the fan where they are idea, is that kind of what you're doing here on your end? Absolutely. And, and NASCAR has just done such a, such a tremendous job of expanding to new markets, new, really fresh ideas. And we want to be a part of that. You know, they're, they're moving in a really interesting direction, very forward thinking. Um, and as you know, and that's something that not everyone is doing. And we want to absolutely be a part of that because they're bringing new consumers into sport that may not be there today with some of their fresh ideas. Dominic Farrell, Megan Malater, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Owen. Coming up, Nikola Jokic stands out in more ways than one among NBA players. He's a fascinating human being and the best example of how much talent is coming out of Serbia. Louisa Thomas of The New Yorker explored the Jokic phenomenon and what it means for the future of basketball. We spoke about that and that conversation is coming up next. All right, thrilled to be joined now by Louisa Thomas, staff writer for The New Yorker. Welcome, Louisa. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. You wrote a fantastic piece about Nikola Jokic for The New Yorker. Uh, what drew you to him as a subject? Um, watching him. Um, I actually started watching him, you know, as he started kind of coming to prominence um, before the 2020 season. But the 2020 season um, in the bubble was when I really first kind of like sat up and, and really took note. Um, it was just so much fun to watch his chemistry with um, Jamal Murray, his teammate. Um, they just played in a kind of really idiosyncratic, um, hard to describe um, way. Um, but that was the fun of it. They they mixed this kind of like 
beautiful dancer's grace with this kind of like lumbering quality. Jamal Murray was like, you know, kind of hunted shots and Jokic sort of to the opposite. And yet they just kind of had this like great yin yang blend. And I wrote a little kind of sketch piece of them then. And I was just like kind of transfixed by him in particular because he was just so on the one hand unusual. And on the other hand, like epitomize so much of what I love basketball. So he both seemed to like cut a, cut against my kind of stereotype, but also in some ways like fulfilled it. So I was actually kind of really intrigued by that, by that tension. I just loved watching him. And so, um, you know, obviously started winning MVP awards. Um, and I was also intrigued by the fact that he was pretty, um, a private person. Um, and I kind of like that, you know, (laughs) um, hard for a journalist, but, um, kind of interesting for a observer. So, yeah. And you, you make a point in the piece that the the way he plays and just like his physical attributes sort of force this um, redefinition of athleticism, which I found really interesting because a player's athleticism, it, that's supposed to be the easy part to evaluate. You know, can they run fast? Can they jump high? Are they strong? That kind of thing. Um, but even there, Jokic is, goes against the mold. Oh, totally. I mean... I think that's been to certainly to the Nuggets advantage because they were able to sort of get him on the, get him on the cheap. Um, But people have, you know, a lot of people in this country and also within sport have a sort of like discomfort with, you know, body types that don't fit some particular mold and they can't sort of see past that. So a lot of people, a lot of um, people played against him, scouts, whatever, you know, just regular guy, regular fans kind of looked at him and saw this guy who, who they thought was like, you know, quote unquote soft or, fat or whatever. And, and he sort of played with that himself. Um, and he was not in great physical shape in a lot of, by a lot of metrics. It's not like, Oh, you know, there are a lot of people who look different, but are just tremendous athletes in conventional ways. They're incredibly strong or fast or whatever. He actually, you know, he couldn't hold a plank, you know, when he started, you know, playing a mega and Serbia, he couldn't do pushups, you know, I mean, he actually did lack a lot of those areas, but he made more than made up for them. And with these tremendous athletic gifts. And, you know, one of the, to kind of give you an insight into that, like I heard many times that he had the, one of the lowest ever recorded, he went to P3, which is one of these like evaluation, physical evaluation centers out in Santa Barbara, like, um, you know, most draft prospects and they, they run you through a battery of tests to sort of give a profile of your athletic achievements and, and, uh, skills and also your, um, potential and your, you know, physical weaknesses and things like that. And he had one of the lowest recorded ever verticals, 17 inches. I mean, that's like really short. I have a higher vertical than 17 inches to give you, um, some kind of, and I heard that over and over and over and over again. It was part of his like legend and, you know, only, you know, only like once did I kind of hear like the counter, you know, the counter argument I, I do include in the piece and, you know, also confirmed from P3 that he actually had one of the highest ever, like, um, you know, uh, records on this, um, test that measures how high your hand gets up to the point at which a rebound happens. Um, and when you think about it, if you're playing basketball, like which is more important, how high you can jump or how high you can collect a rebound, like how high you, you can get your hand there. Like it's pretty obvious. Right. And yet people are so obsessed by this kind of like really crude, you know, signifier of athleticism that they overlook the thing that like actually matters, you know, for bat- playing basketball. Um, and so that was the kind of, you know, the kind of insight I got into like the way people just like couldn't see him, like couldn't view him. And like, it was their loss and, and to sort of dismiss him or like look through him, you know, through these like distorted 
goggles and not appreciate the incredible athleticism that he does possess. Not just like, it's not just his brain. Obviously his brain is like the central aspect of it, but it's also his body actually that allows him to be such a great um, athlete. Yeah. And we're in this era of, you know, the, the seven foot guy doesn't just stand under the basket and wait for a pass and then does a little hook shot. Um, you know, we, we see this, uh, all these guys who can move, they can pass, they can dribble, they can basically be the point guard. Uh, and they're also, you know, seven, three. Uh, and what, one thing I, I learned from your article is that some of that comes from Serbia. Oh yeah. So, um, you know, there is this kind of, um, tradition in Serbia and it dates back to the 1960s, um, of, you know, it's sort of like an old school drill, the fundamentals, everybody has to learn to dribble, everybody has to learn to pass. And, and it's true. You know, um, I talked to Vladi Divac and he told me that, you know, when he was coming up, he was a really big guy. He knew he was going to be playing center someday. And yet he was forced to play point guard, you know, as on these like youth teams, because everybody had to play all the positions because everyone had to master, um, you know, every sort of every position. Um, another person in the Serbian basketball community told me, you know, that they actually play pickup in a different way. Um, they don't, the way they bring the ball out and check, it's like, it actually means that there's a, there's a different kind of, you have to be able, you can't just like check out and kind of fall into your role. Like you actually have to be able to play all the different positions. So kids grow grow up, not, it's not just that, you know, organized basketball culture, you know, inculcates this sort of system of fundamentals, but kids grow up having to dribble and pass and shoot, you know, just to play with their friends. Um, and so that was an interesting part of it. And, you know, obviously there's, you can say that he like does fit this kind of, you know, Eastern European big man, great passer mold, but also obviously he's unique. Like he's, um, does things that they don't do as well. So it's not just that he's like, just like this. And we haven't really appreciated before. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I keep referring to your article, but um, I'm just, there's there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, but it has what is now currently my favorite piece of NBA trivia in it, which is that over the past decade, the teams that have produced the most NBA draft picks are Kentucky, Duke, UCLA, Michigan. And listeners, if you want to pause and guess 100 things and be wrong, you're welcome to do so right now. But uh, the fifth one is Mega Basket. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, tell us about Mega Basket. Um, they're actually, it's tied with Michigan, I think for fourth. Um, you know, and it's also not, um, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not true that like they're producing all the, you know, number one lottery picks. Um, certainly it's a lot of their like second round picks um, like Jokic. Um, mega is sort of really interesting, has a kind of interesting role in the, um, basketball ecosystem. Um, there are two teams in Belgrade, two teams in Serbia, um, which kind of dominate the basketball landscape and they're not mega. Um, they're these two teams, Partizan and Red Star, and they are fierce, um, rivals. And if you're on one of those teams, like your entire existence, and, and if you're the coach of those teams, your entire reason for being is to beat the other, right? So the emphasis is really on, on winning, right? So you have to play your best players and, you know, do the things you need to do to win a game. And, um, mega was, um, kind of conceived as a way to like actually develop young talent. Like, so maybe you play young players, you give them extra minutes. Um, not, not that it was like a kind of G league scenario, but there was a sort of more of an emphasis on player development than on these two teams where you just had to sort of like do whatever you had to do to win because otherwise, you know, you'd be excoriated forever in the newspapers. Um, so mega sort of, there was like an opportunity for these young players to come up and they have a junior team that a really great developmental system. Um, and that's where, um, 
that's where that's where Jokic um, he signed first. He played with the junior team and then he played with the senior team and and did extremely well. Um, and and they're competitive with the the good teams too. It's not just this is like like I said, this is not a, like a a G League ignite scenario. It's it's more like a kind of competitive team, but it's it's trying to do something slightly different than those those two other teams. And, um, and it's had tremendous results, um, partly because of this tradition that we just referred to of, of already strong tradition of developmental, um, play in, within the, you know, Serbian and new former Yugoslavian system. Um, but on top of that, this kind of like extra emphasis on development, um, that was at mega and, and obviously it's had tremendous results. Um, so all of, you know, NBA teams are, are kind of familiar with that. And that's one of the reasons, um, they um they're drawing so much from that from that team yeah and i think the um Jokic, you know exemplifies another phenomenon in the nba which is i mean one the the influx of talent from eastern europe but it presents this interesting situation for you know the people trying to grow the game where i think if you said who's the face of the nba you'd get answers like lebron james steph curry you, maybe kevin durant you'd mostly get american players um but you know now we've got jokic luka doncic um you know Giannis, um uh, joel Embiid are you know i maybe just named off the four best players in the nba right now um and i think especially with Jokic, he's he's very hard to market and some of those guys you know their personality is more forward um and it's easier to you know get them into an ad Jokic is not on social media his media appearances are mostly obligatory uh, there's this great line where he says like the the season where they won the championship last year was wasn't a great year for him because they had to play an extra two months and it's just like he seems like you know he'd rather be in Serbia with his horses, but you know, he's got a good job. He'll do his job, but, um, he's, um, he, he's just, it's, it's kind of like anyone else who has a job. Yeah. Um, he was, so, he's like nobody likes their job. And he's like, if they do, they're lying. And he's sort of, pushing <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think he, he plays up. He's actually a great yeah. comedian. I mean, this mm-hmm. sort of a, one of the other ironies with him is that, you know, he's not, it's funny. Cause on the, on the like cover flap of the magazine, they're like, they put his like, uh, I don't remember what the word exactly reclusive. And I was like, he's not actually reclusive. Um, he's actually a very kind of personable person. Like he clearly has a lot of friends, you know, he's a very big family man. He's like a very sociable figure. He's just not, you know, there for interacting with the, the public so much, you know, he's not there to perform a kind of, um, but he's this great performer. Actually, he's great. Um, you know, in press conferences, he's very funny, um, I mean, he mumbles a lot or whatever, and he doesn't want to be there all the time, but, um, he has this almost vaudeville comedic timing. Um, and I think he plays up the, the sort of like wanting to do something else and be with his horses. Although that's all genuine. Like he really, really loves horses. Um, but I do think that there is this kind of part of him that, um, you know, does, does appreciate that there, you know, his family is more important to him and he does have these passions outside the game and those kind of energize him. Um, he also, though, I don't think, you know, this is not a situation where like he would rather be doing something else and his mind is elsewhere. Like I think he is like fully invested in the idea of winning basketball games. That's his life. And he there's he's he skirts nothing, skimps nothing. He totally dedicates himself to that time. And then when the you know, when the clock stops, I think, you know, he turns it off and goes to his daughter and goes to his wife and, you know, he goes home and he goes to his horses. And um I think that really kind of um, he makes that seem very healthy, actually. We have this kind of stereotype that basketball has to be like all-consuming life. You have to be, you know, kind of like Michael Jordan and just like eat, live, die, breathe. And he's like, eh, you know, like, why not, why not um, 
why not have like more kind of balance in your life and, and i say well sounds good <laughs> yeah right yeah yeah if you had to be Jokic and just like not be on social media or say kevin yeah. durant and just like be fighting with random people on social media say, like one of those yeah, things here. it's always puzzled me a little bit um this sort of like a narrative that he's like hard to market um although that's a big part of the piece because like i said like he's actually so appealing um in a way like i was joking with a friend that like he might not be the superstar the NBA wants, but he's a superstar the NBA needs, you know? Um, also because, I mean, his great appeal is not only his kind of like menschness, I don't know, goodness kind of in his character that he kind of exudes, but also, um, you know, he really like his real appeal is how he, how much fun it is to watch him play basketball. And like, you know, the NBA is like constantly fretting about people not watching basketball or not wanting to like, you know, not wanting to turn on the TV or caring too much about, you know, kind of like feuds or trades or whatever. And I'm like, if you want to really like lean in to someone who really demands that you actually like watch, you know, if you really grab eyeballs and make you kind of gasp, it's like, here you go. It's your best, you know, it's like, the, you know, it's a two-time MVP. Like what else do you want? You know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you think anything about the Jokic story kind of points towards some kind of future for the NBA? Um, I mean, he's such a product of like all these forces we're talking about and the best example of many of them. But yeah, is is there something in who he is, how he plays, where he comes from that that speaks to, you know, sort of where the league's going? Sure. I mean, I think that the, what you mentioned, like there's certainly an international thrust to the game that's just like impossible to ignore. And obviously like all the teams know it now. Everybody has scouts um, throughout Europe, but certainly in Serbia. Um, and there are a couple of pro- young prospects are, you know, um, very much, you know, in that coming out of that region. Um, and so I don't think people are going to like sleep on them again. I hope also that people learn the lesson, um, you know, from a business perspective that like, you know, you shouldn't sort of, uh, I mean, this is sort of like a little bit of a money ball lesson, but like, you know, don't uh, judge a book by its cover. Don't judge an athlete by it his abs, I guess, you know, that like there's both potential for tremendous development, but also, um, you know, skills, you know, these, some of these people have, um, tremendously valuable skills, even if they don't immediately like present. Um, but in terms of the marketing, like, I mean, I think people just need to have more imagination. Like, I mean, I think that the MBA, like the thrust of the MBA has been toward these sort of like and this is partly that the athletes like fault, I'll say, <laughs> I mean, I'm using that kind of facetiously, um, you know, to treat athletes as people instead of just athletes, you know, more than an athlete is kind of like the, you know, the saying, and, you know, these guys are rappers and singers and designers and, you know, they're doing a thousand things. And the NBA has like, I think smartly tried to embrace that and showcase that. And they now have these like NBA experiences, which I know front office has written about, but like this idea that you're going to sort of give fan service to connect athletes to panels and things like that. And Jokic could not be further from that than anything. Um, But I think it would be a mistake for the league to overlook the appeal of this like guy who just plays basketball, right? Like you could mark, it's not his job to market himself, you know, like it's the NBA's job and the Nuggets job, but particularly the you know, NBA's job, if he's going to be one of the faces of the NBA to like figure out how to like sell pe- that to people. And I, I don't think that's a hard sell. Like it's just so much fun to watch. And if you can't figure out how to, you don't even need to convince people. You just need to like put it in front of their face. Um, and if you can't do that, like you're not 
that great at your job. This piece was such a pleasure to write, you know, and it was probably because I just spent so much time watching him. And like, it was such a pleasure to write because I felt like I just got to, like, my job was to communicate my pleasure to people. And like, without, you know, it's not like a puff. I mean, my hope is not a puff piece, but like, partly it's about like that. And I'm like, that's like, the league should be doing that. Like why, you know, you know, not that it's easy, but like, certainly like, it's not a hard job. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating stuff. Louisa Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you. That's it for today. Rate us and review us wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.